I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. This time, I speak with Sarah. Sarah is a marital abuse survivor. She is also my cousin. In this episode, you will see how domestic violence can sneak into a relationship and ruin it over time. Here's Sarah's story. So Sarah, when and how did you first meet Mike? Mike was actually a good friend of mine in high school, and we were just friends. There was never any romantic involvement in high school. In fact, I sat across from his high school girlfriend in lunch because we had assigned seats. What I thought about their relationship was that he was a really nice guy who treated her very well. And um, it wasn't until college we started to date. What year in high school? I'm just curious. Uh, I met him my junior year because that's when I, that's when I moved to that high school. Uh, as a teenager, I had left one high school in 10th grade after 10th grade, oh, okay. uh, as you know, you know, after my parents passed oh, okay. and I moved to a new high school. So if I could take you on a little bit of a tangent, you said that you were in high school and yet your parents were not living. Both of my parents passed away within six months of each other, really five months of each other. Uh, when I was a, a rising sophomore, my father passed away the summer between my freshman year and my sophomore year, and my mother passed away uh, right in, smack in the middle of my sophomore year. Both kind of freak things. You know, dad had a, he had a fatal, fatal heart attack playing baseball. So then mom and I had a car accident, and uh, she had a cerebral hemorrhage. We're not even sure if it was as a result of the car accident or was she having a slow bleed that caused the car accident. We're never, we never really figured that out, but I went to live with my oldest sibling that necessitated a move to a new high school. And this is all still in New Jersey? You, yes. You grew up there. New Jersey. You know, when you started to focus more on him, he's not just a classmate now. You know, he's he's becoming a love interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In what ways did you feel that he stood out to you specifically in the beginning? I mean, you said that you liked what you could tell from his relationship with his girlfriend at that time. Then eventually he becomes your boyfriend. But what about him that attracted you? What was good? I, I kind of liked them because of what? I think part of it, you know, looking back now that I'm so far beyond or, you know, well beyond that time, he had become kind of a comfortable familiar. He was predictable, you know, and he was a nice person. The time in my life that it was, I was 19, 20, 21, you know, I just felt very comfortable with him. He was a, a very reliable, mature guy. He planned. He was a really good student. He also liked to have fun with our friends. And we, again, like I said, we had the same friend group. So it was just a nice, I, I do recall saying, you know, when I was making the leap from friend to girlfriend, thinking, boy, I would really hate to mess up this friendship. And we talked about that even before we started to date. And I said, you know, I just wouldn't want to wreck our friendship and it would change the whole dynamic with our friend group and all that. And he would pretty confidently said, well, let's just see where it goes. And then if, if it doesn't go somewhere, we'll make a, an agreement that it's not going to ruin our friendship or ruin our friend's friendship. Yeah, so, that sounds... Sounds very mature yeah. at a very still young age. Pretty young age, yeah. Yeah. At what point did you you married him? So how old were you, let's say, when you married him? We dated for about 18 months while we were in college. It was a long distance romance sometimes because I was away at college and he was in New Jersey for college. You know, I think that not that we had each had lots of boyfriends or girlfriends, but I think we both felt like, hey, this this could be the person that I end up spending, you know, the rest of my life with, we, we were pretty compatible. And then we found out that we were going to have our college baby. <laughs> so that kind of accelerated the trip to the altar. Uh, I think in modern day times, we probably wouldn't have gone there, but you know, as well as I do how that would have flown with the family. So we accelerated our plans. We were in our senior year, we were heading towards graduation when we found out that we were pregnant. And so we decided to get married. We did that before we graduated. 
at that point in time now, okay, there's a there's a baby on the way and you're yeah. married. Had you picked up on anything by this point where you were worried about him in some way that you you sort of saw something coming that maybe wouldn't be so great? You know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Yes. Immediately when trouble started, I hearkened back to red flags that I witnessed during the dating phase of our of our relationship. Mm-hmm. I always describe it as he went from it was it was an alcohol issue. He went from being the frat boy who drinks too much, like all the other frat boys on the weekends. And then everybody graduated and he was the guy who would drink too much at the football games when we tailgated and would have to get a ride home. And there were maybe a handful of guys like that at every tailgate. But then as we got older and into our relationship more, and we had our our first child and then we had our second child, he continued to be the drunkest guy at the party. And he continued to be the guy who hammered away drinking. That was the perspective that gave me that 2020 hindsight to look back at our 19 year old selves when he would get completely obliterated at somebody's baby's christening. Oh, yeah. yeah you know, yeah. that's not appropriate. Right, sure. Or I could see maybe at one of our friend's weddings or at a tailgate party, everybody's drinking a lot, but you could rely on him to be the guy who needs a ride home. And I did not like that. We discussed it several times as people dating well before our baby was on his way and well before we discussed marriage. At first, it was met with, I know, I know, I'm such an idiot. I shouldn't be doing that. Because for a guy who is otherwise very mature, very level-headed, very clear-minded in schoolwork, and he always had one or two jobs, he was always very focused, he would never dream of being late to work. For a guy who was so straight and narrow, as soon as you put some alcohol in his hands, he would lose all of that good judgment and just go overboard. You know, I also learned later that this was a pattern he, you know, that he witnessed in his household. When he drank like that, what was he like besides inebriated? But I mean, you know, there are pleasant drunks, I guess, and mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. miserably yeah. angry drunks who want to fight everybody in the place. Or, but what was he like? I've described this to many people. He went from being the silly frat boy, you know, hey, let's go, um, steal the lawn gnome off somebody's yard, the silly drunk, right? To being, as a way older adult, being angry, belligerent, and horrible blackout. Uh So as we moved into our early 20s, he became more of a, what do you mean you want to drive home? I can drive, point where I'd say, well, I'm not getting in the car with you. And then he'd start pushing back and pushing back. And alcohol really took a grip on him, I'd say, in his mid-20s. It was everyone else's problem, not his problem. Uh, He could go literally a month without touching a drink. But then if he did have a drink, he had to drink to excess or else he didn't think he had a good time. He would always frame good times by, boy, everybody was wasted. Oh, that was such a fun wedding. Everybody got plastered. Like he would judge the the time that was had based on how much alcohol was available or how much everybody drank. Yeah, right. But many times he was the only one drinking to that extent. Sure. And he didn't see it. When you saw this developing and getting worse, did you feel at times like, okay, um, this is the one thing about him. Maybe I can move him through this, help him out, be a fixer-upper? Did you feel that way about him? Absolutely. And it was the only point of contention, honestly. For getting married at such a young age, we really did not have conflict over anything but his alcohol issues. Mm -hmm. We only ever had issues over alcohol. And I used to say to him, if we could eliminate this one problem, Mm -hmm. it would be wonderful. Right. But it was very important to him. And I learned you will never win against alcohol. You'll never win. Right. It's got such a grip. And the the chances of pulling that off are so slim. It's sad, but it's true. Yeah. There's it when alcohol's involved to that extent, there are three people in the relationship and you are always going to be third. Right. Wow. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Where are you in a timeline when this starts to escalate into something more than a, a guy that wants to drink too much and wants to 
drive because I'm fine. I'm fine. I know what I'm doing and maybe throwing a few elbows around. You're like, I'm okay. You know, stop it. I'm fine. I, I can do this. At what point does it, does it start to then become even just more than that? I don't want to, I don't want to lead you. Yeah. Yeah. So again, with the realization that a lot of this didn't occur to me as behavior connected to his alcohol issues or his alcoholism, because that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Pretty early on, he started to, I mean, he always had sort of controlling behavior, but it was more or less like, I need the keys. You're not driving. I don't want everyone to see me, my wife driving me out of here, you know, that kind of thing. It would embarrass me to have to. He didn't want to admit that, you know, that he was not in control even though right. he was not in control. And I think the, the earliest time I can recall that he really did something heinous when he was drunk or drinking was I had a little pot of water on the stove. I was sterilizing baby bottle pieces and I had the baby on my hip. He might've been, you know, he might've been a year old and I was in the kitchen and he came in from being out and it was late. You know, I think the baby had just woken up like in the middle of the night, like say maybe one o'clock or something. And, um, you know, way before cell phones, it was not unusual for him to just disappear. Like he would say, oh, I'm going to go and meet so-and-so, meet one of his buddies for one beer and watch the end of the baseball game. But then he'd be out till two in the morning and they'd go find whatever bars were open. So he would say, I'll be home at 11 and he'd come home at two. So it was one of those nights. As soon as he walked in, I'm standing in the kitchen with the baby on my hip. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't know if you were dead. I was going to start calling the police. And he would always say, why do you worry so much about me? I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm like, well, you should just call me and tell me you're going to be late then. Cause I'm, I was a worrier. You have to remember too, my frame of reference. I came home from church. My dad was dead. Mm. I can't, I went out, you know, with my mom in the car, my mom was dead. So, right. I mean, I was wary of the rug getting pulled out from under my life, but you know, my frame of reference was something bad's going to happen. Prove me wrong. You know, so, so that's why I was always worried if, if he was late or worried if somebody didn't call to give me a heads up. I mean, some of that is normal, but I think I was heightened. I think my awareness oh, on that kind of stuff was heightened. Right. You've time. seen it happen. It's not like a theory. Yeah. You've, you've experienced it. Firsthand. So he was, you know, he was upset that I was questioning him. He was upset that I was holding him accountable, you know, saying, I wish you would have called me. I was worried. And he had been drinking obviously. And he, got so upset, he took the pot of water and threw it down on the floor. And I was far enough away. It wasn't like he threw it at me. But Mm -hmm. when it hit the floor, the water sprayed out of the pot and it went flying, you know, it hit my legs and one little drop hit the baby's foot. And Uh, the baby shrieked because it was boiling hot water. Sure. The baby shrieked and the baby cried so loud that my neighbors came over. And they knocked on the door. We were in an apartment and we had our windows open because it was warm. Uh, My neighbors mm -hmm. came over and they said, is everything okay? It sounds like somebody's getting killed over here or something like that. Right. Yeah. And I, you know, smoothed it over. I, I don't even remember what I said, but it was probably something like, oh, I dropped the pot. I mean, that was the first time I think I started to take responsibility for his bad behavior to hide it. Right. Sure. So that was, you know, that's my earliest indication that. He wasn't acting, you know, how you would typically right. hope. What do you recall about his actual reaction to what he had done and the result? He usually would remove himself from the situation and let me deal with it. Just head to the bedroom or yeah. some other place. and Yeah, head to the bedroom. And then the next day it was all my fault. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. All my fault. You made, like you made such a big deal out of uh-huh. it. That's why that happened. Yeah. Why would you be boiling water at midnight? You know, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, just fill in the blanks. It was always someone else's fault, usually mine. You had one child at that time. You had a mm-hmm. little boy right. and you had more children after that. Mm-hmm. So clearly you were hanging in there, maybe hope against actual evidence that somehow this thing will right itself. I mean, you're in, you're in this relationship for the long haul, just by your actions. Sure. Did he ever seek help? Did he ever go to AA or anything like no, that? No, he, he, uh, well, late, 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 he went to court ordered AA. That's oh. far in the future. When right. we were okay. young like this, I confided in my sister and she had a discussion with him. 
and he was remorseful and he was, I'll never do that kind of thing again. And I always tell anybody who I speak to about this, that when he was good, he was very, very good. And when he was bad, he was awful. Just like that little storybook. When things were good, they were very, very good. And there were years, stretches of years that were very, very good. So had this been a downhill slide from day one, I think it would have been a lot easier to leave. But this was peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. And I'd have to say there were more peaks than valleys. And I also combine that with my typical battered woman thing. Like, I can fix this. I can fix this. I fix everything. I've taken care of myself since I was 15. I can do this. And besides, I know he's capable. You've seen the good days. I've seen better. That's right. I've seen right. better. And I know he's capable better. And anybody with any common sense wouldn't want to throw their family away over a bottle of beer. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just figured this is immaturity. Even though he's mature in a lot of other ways, he's going to grow out of this. I always had that milestone like, oh, once the kids are older, he's going to realize they're observing his behavior and he's going to rein it in. Mm -hmm. You know, once I always had a reason why things were going to be better. And sometimes they were. It'll get fixed eventually, but not necessarily today, because today you're busy and you're getting somebody dressed or whatever you're doing with a kid, you know? So you have one child at that time. Now you're still trying to make this thing work. Are you, are you uh, working at this time? Yes. Yeah. I always worked. Um, as soon as I graduated from college, I got a job right after I took my boards, my nursing okay. boards. I think I started my job in July. So I graduated in May and got my job in July. Uh -huh. And I worked full time on the evening shift. And we had a, a nice rhythm going where I'd be home with our son until about 2.30. Then I'd drop him off at daycare. And then Mike would pick him up at 5.00. And then sometimes they'd come over to the hospital and have dinner with me or some, or sometimes most of the time I would leave dinner ready at home if I made it during the day. Like we had a pretty good mm -hmm. cadence going there. You know, as a nurse, you have to do your, you have to pay your dues and work the odd shifts until you can get on days. So that didn't happen for me for two and mm -hmm. a half years. And right as I was getting on day shift, I had my second child. So then I just went back part-time after that. Okay. This is going along. Somehow you are managing it. You have this family now. There's five of you. There's three little boys, your husband and you. You're going along. You're doing this, doing your nurse job. He's a businessman. He's successful. At some stage, you know, you're going to add more to your repertoire. And Mike doesn't really take to that very well. He starts to realize that, no, this just changes the way he feels about the whole house, specifically you. So what was going on that, that made him really ramp this up, the bad behavior? So there came a point in my nursing career where the kids were a little older, you know, they were not babies anymore. They were what I call middle-aged kids and could kind of come home from school on their own. And I became interested in going back to school. So I thought about what I'd like to do. And I had dabbled in a little bit of legal nurse consulting. At the same time, it turns out that we were going to be moving back north, that Mike was getting a new job. Okay. So it opened up a possibility for me to go to law school because we we're going to live in a location that had several different law schools close by. So I decided to look into that and I took it one step at a time. And meanwhile, we continued to have episodes, I'd say maybe yearly unpleasant episodes related to alcohol where he would drink too much. Year, yearly meaning it could be 10, 11, 12 months. Yeah. In between. We could go a long time okay. and then there'd be some pivotal moment mm -hmm. where he drank too much and he got ugly about it. If I mentioned anything to him and it was just a recurring undercurrent, mm -hmm. bad part of our relationship where again, everything else was pretty good. You say recurring, but you mean again, there could be a year in between. That's not mm -hmm. like weekly, monthly. No, no, not at all. It wasn't regular. Right. Was, so that really was, sneaks up on you. And when it happens, it's yeah. like an earthquake, I guess, in the house. And it was just starting to become predictable enough to be a little scary. Mm -hmm. So I would think, oh, we're going out with the whole neighborhood to celebrate, you know, is this going to be Jekyll or Hyde who comes home with oh, me tonight? Yeah, well It was put. starting to become, sometimes I would 
decline to go to something. Like I'd say, well, the next- Do you mean you would decline or the whole group? I would say we couldn't make it. Okay. I would just say, oh, you know what? We couldn't make it. Right. Sometimes he didn't even know we were invited. If we had something important to do the next day, I was starting to become mindful of what might occur the night before. I might get Jekyll. I might get Hyde. Sometimes I declined to go to those things. And like I said, sometimes he didn't even know we were invited in the first place. But I mean, he may get wind that somebody said, oh, Mike, it's too bad yeah, you, why didn't, you guys didn't come over. And how did he right. deal with that? I don't know that he ever knew that. Oh, okay. Because I would never con- totally conceal. I mean, it probably wasn't things that he even cared about going to or knew about. It might be like the hospital gala. How would he know? He would only want to go to that if I said, hey, let's go, you know, or something. It would just be something like that. Mm-hmm. But okay. And, and a lot of this was behavior that I didn't even call back up until after the fact. And I'd look back and I'd go, yeah, I was doing that. You know, or I'd talk to my counselor and she'd point out these things and I'd say, yeah, I actually did do that. So it might not have even been conscious behavior, but there was enough behavior that I was starting to become really worried about this being a lifelong issue for him because we had already been married over 15 years Uh, when, uh when I was heading towards law school. And sometimes we'd have arguments only ever about alcohol. And he would say things to me like, who would want a used up mother of three? Like who would want you? You, if you ever divorce me, you would never have a future. You would be alone because who would want you? And that kind of, that kind of, yeah, that's a classic one. I'm sure you've heard many of your podcast guests say similar things. Yes. Yes. Very classic. And, um, you, yeah, yeah. And, I'm probably the best thing you'll ever have and you'll never find anybody quite like me. And right. And there's so many women who would love to be with me and I could take them on vacations and you don't even appreciate our vacations. And like, he would just get really down on me. So one of the things he used to say all the time is you're just a nurse you can't live on a nurse's salary. How would you survive? Cause you know, you're never going to get a penny from me if you leave mm-hmm. and you would never be able to survive and you don't even have a 401k and finances are very important to him. When I started to look into going to law school, first of all, I didn't have the confidence to even think I could get into law school. I promised myself to take it in little bites. If I feel successful studying for that LSAT, I'll take the LSAT. If I do halfway decent on the LSAT, I'll apply to law schools. If I get into a law school, maybe I'll go to law school. So I didn't, I didn't start off with the big picture that this was going to happen. I started off with one step at a time. Mm-hmm. And I got into all five law schools I applied to. Oh, my goodness. So, and just out of some stroke of luck and, and whatever, I did fairly well on my LSATs. I proceeded to get into law school and do everything I had to do to take care of my kids My oldest son started college the same week that I started law school. Mm. He was not at home. He was away, but I still had the other two guys. And so I took that trajectory through law school, but that's when it started to occur to me. Law school is my escape plan. Mm -hmm. And that's when I started to feel like I had the ability to extricate myself from this situation if I had to, because I knew I would be able to afford raising my children and taking care of myself. And I did have a good career path ahead of my, ahead of me. Were you getting any kind of counseling at this point in time? Were you going to domestic violence counselors or a psychologist or anybody that you could say, here's my life. Let me paint this picture. What do you think? After the pot of water incident, that was the first time I ever went to a counselor. Ah. And I had bopped in and out of counseling in those valley times. All throughout, I saw several different kinds of counselors. No one ever approached the topic of domestic violence with me. I think they were so entranced, honestly, sometimes by my family story of losing my parents that sometimes the focus was more on that than on what was going on at home. It could, in fairness, be because I may have minimized some of the, you know, I was the classic abused woman protecting him. Mm -hmm. The enabler. 
Yeah. Yeah. Because I didn't want it to be true. Mm-hmm. And I always had hope that he would change. Right. And this is also why I kept everything secret from my family. Other than that pot of water, 20 years went by before anybody ever learned of one more behavior that was objectionable in Mike. And how long does law school take? Because I imagine you're part-time, weren't you? Or did you still pull it off in three years? No, no. four, Four years. I did it at night. I worked three days a week in a recovery room at a local hospital while I went to school. When I was off in the summers, I I tried to work as much as I could because I was trying to save up to pay for the next year. Okay. So uh, I didn't want to come out with huge loans. So that was the the cadence of those four years was work at the hospital and then work and then go to school at night and study, you know, when I could. Are you and Mike paying for your law school or are you paying for your law school? I paid for one semester and I took a loan out for the second semester every year. I would walk in and be able to pay full freight for one semester. So why wasn't that you pull your money together and mm-hmm. the house pays for it? You know, the, the family pays for it. Or is that not the way yeah. you, you approached your finances? You know, I think that that was probably just because it was my idea. I think he would have probably been happy to pay for my law school if I had asked him, could we just, you know, could we use house money for this? He was actually very generous. He's a very, he is a very generous person. He's very okay. generous to our kids. I think my plan I set for myself was, hey, if I work, I can pay for law school. Mm-hmm. I guess I took it as a sort of a sense of being self-made and mm-hmm. and it's how I did college. It's exactly how I did college. So law school, you know, it, it was not, you know, it was not a point of contention of how it got paid for. So up until this point, we have a nurse with a lowercase n, you know, mm-hmm. not nurse, not doctor, nurse type level in his right. mind. I mean, you're Right. You know, how are you going to get by and you don't make enough and what would you ever do without me? But at this point now we have nurse and we have lawyer in the house. Mm-hmm. Does this start to get on his mind? Is this eating away at his self-esteem a little bit? So when we moved for Mike's new job, he was on this really sharp upward trajectory career-wise. He, it was a really good move for him. You know, looking back, I think with all that responsibility came a great deal of self-importance. Mm, okay. At the same time, I think he saw me go from being the reliable little nurse who has a very predictable schedule, excellent housewife, you know, taking care of the home and all that, to having something competing with that, which was studying. So my first year, which was extremely difficult, mm-hmm. I had to battle for my grades. I was not a natural they didn't come naturally to me. I really studied a lot. That competed with his good time. He doesn't especially love the cold weather. He wanted to to get away for a quick weekend away, somewhere warm. I would have to do things on the weekend. Sometimes for law school, I would study a lot. And that became something that competed with his good time. So he would like to get away pretty much every winter month for a weekend to somewhere warm. And I would say, I can't really do that. I have study group or I have some other, you know, mock trial or I have something on the weekend. And it really started to cause conflicts. I would say things like, you know, this is short term. This is just for the next couple of years. And it's not a big deal. We'll, you mm-hmm. know, we'll get through it. And, but it was very, very important to him. And he started to, he started to have kind of a grudge against my school. And I had more than a few people in the family and in our friend groups who, when they would say to him, aren't you so proud of her? I can't believe it. Uh, She's going to be a lawyer. She's already a nurse and she's juggling the kids and the house. And boy, I was at your house and it was so pretty decorated for Christmas. And how do you guys do it all? And all like, they would give kudos and he, and he would say, yeah, I know. I know. Law school, law school, law school. That's all I ever hear. I had more than a few friends say to me, it's like, he's jealous. You know, it's like, Uh, he's a little jealous of your success. Like I want a competition, Uh, a negotiation competition. I won it for the whole Northeast. And I was sent to Georgetown to compete against some other students from the Southeast. And we were going to have like the regional championships or whatever. Right. And it was a big deal. I was so excited about it. And he said, yeah, but it's, it's not real. Right. And I said, no, well, no, of course not. It's a competition. It's fake cases. 
And he goes, well, God, it's not like you're arguing in front of the Supreme Court. Uh, Those kinds of comments started to give me an inkling. Poke some holes in there. Yeah, started to give me an inkling like, listen, you're not as important as you think you are. And I'm going to knock you down just a few notches so that right. I can feel right. still like yeah. the big man on campus. I'm the big deal. Yes. Yeah. And when we would argue and when we would fight, inevitably comments were made to me like, it doesn't matter, you know, who would go to you? Who would go to you as a lawyer? You can't even decide what to order at a restaurant. You're so indecisive. Who would go to you? Mm. I would like a lawyer who could make a decision now and then. He would just take opportunities to, to kind of knock down my confidence levels. Mm -hmm. True to form, he would come back later and apologize. And I'm so sorry, I didn't mean any of that. I said it out of anger. You're going to be a great lawyer and I want to support you. And I'm so proud of you. And So when you got these apologies, did that convince you that, oh, okay, well, you know, he's just letting off some steam or something? Or did you think, nah, the, the, that one left the scar? How did you handle it? I never believed him. Oh, really? I never believed his apologies. Now you've turned the corner a bit with this guy. Yeah, because the pattern had just, just so progressively mm -hmm. grown to be predictable. Picture's getting clearer. Yeah, I could set my watch to it. And so by 2004, I started to become very despondent about my future. I had been through a lot of different episodes with him over those first three years. I was struggling in school. I, I was going to graduate. It was easier, but I was emotionally struggling with being able to stick to my classwork and really learn the tools and the skills you need to become, go out and be a practicing lawyer. I was struggling with confidence, looking back at it as a self-proclaimed abused woman now, then I wouldn't admit it to myself, but looking back at it now, I was going through the typical crisis of confidence that he wanted me to go through. He was not on my side. He did not want me to succeed. If there was any incentive for him wanting me to succeed, it was financial. It was, oh, okay. it was purely financial. It was like, Oh, good. Now you're going to drop that 30 buck an hour job as a nurse and, and you'll make, you know, three times that as a lawyer, I hope, you know, it was all financial to him. It was not, mm -hmm. there was not value in being a lifelong learner or helping people or having career fulfillment. It was all, all right, fine. If that's what you want to do, good. At least it'll bring in more money because mm -hmm. money was very important to him. Okay. So you've covered off a lot on emotional abuse and you've put a few toes into financial abuse in one way or another, the way he sends it up, the way he looks at it. You have not really said much in the way of physical abuse. Has there mm -hmm. been any at this point in time when you're going into your final year in law school? There was no physical abuse at that point. The closest thing that I can say would resemble physical abuse. We were on one of these, you know, quick trips South, mm -hmm. went out somewhere and he drank too much. And it was, again, over the driving or over the, he stopped in the middle of a busy intersection and said, get out. Oh. And I said, no, I'm not getting out. And he said, get out right now, get out. And I was like, I'm not, I'm not getting out of the car. There's, it's the middle of an intersection. And he opened, reached across me, opened the door, flung it open and pushed me. Oh. And I didn't fall out of the car, but I was, you know, and traffic came to a stop. And he literally like pulled the door shut and took off went back to the hotel. And so that's the closest thing to hands-on, mm -hmm. you know, physical abuse. He had pulled over before. He had pulled over before and put me out of the car a couple times. And he actually got you out? Yeah. He pulled over. And at those points, I was like, okay, fine. I'd rather be in a cab. Right. I don't want to be in a car with a drunk driver. Right. And he would also drive really fast because he knew that it would scare me. Mm -hmm. And he would drive really fast and he'd swerve between trucks and he'd get up close to trucks and he'd lean, he'd go over as far as he could because he knew I was terrified of trucks. Okay. And again, not a big surprise. I had a fatal car accident with my mother. I was a, I was a little nervous as a passenger when things got hairy in a car. Right. Right. Well, well you'd be scared anyway. And then, and this is tapping into something from years before. So yeah, I can understand that. And he knew it. Yeah, he knew it. So that's where that, at that point in time, that's where those were his physical behaviors. So you graduate from law school, you're out. Mm -hmm. What do you do now in your career? What kind of, do you start now interviewing and what yeah. are you doing? 
So I graduated in the spring. I took the bar in the summer and I started a job as an associate attorney in a small firm in the fall. That was tough because you're doing billable hours. You always have to put in as a new attorney, you have to put in like double the billable hours to actually bill 40 hours. So it was demanding and it was hard. And, and I didn't especially love the lawyer I was working for and, and all that. So, oh, and meanwhile, things start to escalate at home as far as episodes, drinking episodes were becoming more frequent. How frequent is more frequent? Well, I could almost bank on every three months, there'd be some major problem. Mm -hmm. Okay. Simultaneous to this, someone, a new, a new couple moved onto the block, but she was like super party girl, Uh, super, uh. not a worrier. And he always compared me to her. He'd be like, why can't you be more like her? You're such a worrier. You got to be more fun. Right. And I was no fun. And Mm. he would come up with nicknames for me. It also happened that the more he would drink, starting in our 20s, the less I would drink. Mm. Because I always felt like, hey, somebody needs to be in control for these little kids. Yeah. You're the designated driver or designated partner in this case. So it wouldn't be rare for me to go out and not have any drink or maybe have one drink. Right. But he interpreted that as me not wanting to be fun or not Mm -hmm. wanting to Mm -hmm. join in with all the fun. Because like I said early in the earlier, he would, as a young guy, he would measure how much fun everybody had by how much alcohol was consumed. Yeah. The more they were like him, the better. Yeah. Well, he blended in then, you know, I think he would blend in. So during this period of time, I would say things started to get really rocky every three months. And then I started to get compared. And this was a, this was a nice couple, but he, he also at the same time started to isolate us from other groups and other couples. You know, I would recommend going out with this, with, with, I'm thinking of, of another couple that we really liked. Our sons were friends. And all of a sudden he started saying, you know what, she's a whatever and, and, and he's low class or something like, like started to take really big hits at these really nice people that we had made solid friendships with for the prior three or four, or maybe two or three years. Or I'd say, Hey, why don't you meet me? I'm going to be going out with all, all my classmates up in Boston. You know, why don't you meet me and we can all go out together. And he'd say, why do I want to sit around with a bunch of Poindexters? Even though, honestly, he would probably intellectually run circles around them because he's oh, really? he was really bright. He was really full of himself. And I'm a big cheese at work, and I'm not going to piddle around with these peons. He really had a high opinion of himself. But, I mean, there's this other couple where where this the woman of the other couple, though, he may have met his, his counterpart or something like that, you know? His party alter ego. Right. So where does that go? He would always want them to be the people that we went out with or, yeah, let's grab them and go here or, or include them in our other groups, you know, that mm-hmm. we'd go out with and reintroduce them to lots of our other friends because he would have a drinking buddy and okay. his, her her husband didn't care. He was like, hey, the more the merrier, whatever. Uh, She's a party girl. Great. Right. He was a sensible guy, but he liked to, you know, he liked to party too. But I didn't like to be with them particularly because I knew Obviously, the reason why Mike wanted to be with them is because they endorsed his behavior. They didn't reel him back like other yeah, of our friends. They didn't say, see any problem there. Sure. But this group was like, hey, let's go back and have more drinks at the house after we have too many drinks out. And then here's me with my one glass of wine, you know, because I, I, I wanted to maintain control. Right. The, the teetotaler in the group. Right. And I was just not fun. The grown up. The grown right. up. And they used to make fun of me. All three of them would gang up on me sort of and make fun of me and call me, they called me the commissioner. They'd be like, oh, Oh. the commissioner's here. She's going to sanction our drinking now. Are you counting our drinks? I heard a term, it's probably been around a long time, the term flying monkeys. Have you heard that one? Well, just from the Wizard of Oz. (laughs) And I'm sure that's where it came from. I heard it a couple episodes ago. They would represent that. So to the witch, in this case, Mike, Mm -hmm. Mike's the witch, and the flying monkeys he marshals them yeah. to do some of his dirty work yeah. so that while they're flying around you, he's not doing it, right. but they're, they're bringing his message to you right. and letting you know how uncool you are. So you either get with the program or who knows what's going to happen or stay home for that matter, right? Right. right. Just, uh, you know, your sad self. At some stage, 
somehow you've had enough. Yeah. Okay. What got you to that point when you bottomed out and said, okay, I don't know what I'm going to do, but it doesn't involve you in the long haul. What, what, what happened or what series of things happened that you can point to? You say, okay, I just can't do this. After I graduated from law school, again, every three months or so, we'd have a really bad escalated fight, always, again, around alcohol. And his behavior, each time his filter was less and less and less. And he mm. would say and do things that were just absolutely terrible. One night, I didn't want to go to yet another neighbor's house at like one in the morning and have more drinks. And I said, you know what? You guys go. I'm going to go home. And he was like, fine, you go home. So I walked home. I got ready for bed. I went and got in my bed. He shows up and he starts berating me for not being fun. And he was so embarrassed because he was the only one there without a wife. And, you know, and how could I do this to him and all this? And my way of dealing with it was to just say, because you can't argue with a drunk person. And I would mm -hmm. just say, let's talk about this tomorrow. Go back if you want to. It's fine. I don't think anybody cares if I'm there or not. And he opened the window and threw all my clothes out on the driveway. We were upstairs, upstairs bedroom with a window that looked over the driveway. And he threw all my clothes out the window onto the driveway. Going through drawers and pulling things out? No, just my closet. Walked in the closet, took armfuls, bundles of clothes, walked over, punched the screen out, and threw all my clothes from my closet on the driveway. Symbolically, what is that? Is that a surrogate for you? I don't know, but that was along with, you know, you can just get out tomorrow. Here, I'll help you, that kind of thing. Are there still two boys in the house who are in their bed asleep somewhere? What's happening with them? I think at that point, there was just the, our youngest. I think our, our oldest was off working. He had graduated college. Okay. And our middle was in college, away at college. And right. it was just the little guy. Luckily, his bedroom was as far away down the bedroom hall as you can get from our room. I know from talking to him, I know that he heard different things over the years, but I don't know. He was exposed to a lot of stuff, I think, as much as I tried to shield him. Right. So your clothes are landing down below. Yeah. Now what happens? What so, are you doing? What is he doing? What's happening? Because they're down there. Could you please stop doing that? Stop. What are you doing? You know, all that. And he's just going at it. And I'm like, okay, I guess I'm just going to go down and get them. I went down, popped up the garage door, popped the back open of my SUV, loaded all the clothes in that because it was closer to get them out in case it rained or whatever, and shut the garage door, went back up and went in the guest room. And mm. the next day, predictably, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was just so upset. If you give them long enough to talk, He'll circle it around to make it your fault somehow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Everything's always my fault. And then there would be a lot of remorseful behavior. Hey, do you want to go out to whatever restaurant? Oh, look, I emptied the dishwasher. You know, he would just, all that kind of like, I'm sorry behavior to try to make everything better. This happened, this kind of thing happened every three months. He would do something and it's it just would escalate and escalate and escalate. We had a second home and we used to go there every now and then. We had a really negative episode at a bar in the summer where he was drinking so much that when he asked for another drink, the bartender said, hey, bud, I think you've had enough and you're still going to go to your table for dinner. And he got really upset at the bartender and he said, I'm calling your manager. How dare you? And meanwhile, I'm drinking water. Mm. And then I said to him, I said something like, Hey, what, what do you want anyway? Like, what, what do you want? Did you want to come out to dinner to have a nice dinner? Or did you want to come out and get completely plastered? Like what, what kind of a fun night is that? You've already had five gin and tonics before dinner. And he said, you know what I want? And he pointed to this woman across the bar and he says really loud. Mm -hmm. He goes, I want to F her. And the bartender said, Hey buddy, that's over the line. And I went, I can't believe you said that. And he took my shoulders and he pushed me up oh, in the bar wow. and he said, don't you oh. ever talk to me like that again. And boy, like five guys in the bar attacked him uh. and the cops came and all that. So that was an escalation. Yeah. And then, so where do you go after that? Besides, you know, back to the place you're staying, your house. I mean, yeah. there's, there's still tomorrow's after that. That you get the big tearful, I'm so sorry, honey. And uh, no, there was one episode after that. So that was a bad episode, but the worst episode was 
was the final episode. That was about six months later. And so there was something in between too that was unpleasant. But so I said, that's, that's enough. And we were having an in-house separation. We agreed to go to counseling, which we had been in counseling some years prior with some success. Okay. So we went to counseling. The counselor said, boy, you guys, uh, before you can do any couples counseling, you need to go to individual counseling. So we split, you know, and did that. And we maintained an in-house separation and it was cordial and everything was okay. And so this means you're in that room and he's out of that room. Yeah. That's what you mean. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. And we still ate dinner together and we did kid things together and all that, but we were just cooling it for a while and doing our individual counseling and addressing our individual issues. And at that point in time, he said he was going to be completely sober and he started off strong And then he would come home from his counselor visits. He was going once a week. He would come home and he would slowly over several weeks, he would say, oh, well, my counselor says it's okay if I just have beer. He says alcohol, like, you know, hard alcohol is the bad thing here that I've never had a bad episode on beer alone. And I was like, really? Mm -hmm. That just doesn't sound right. And he's like, no, that's what he says. I could have beer. It's like, okay, you know, whatever. So one night, I made some dinner and he left work and he said he had his counselor appointment at seven and he'd be home at eight. And I said, okay, I'll I'll put your dinner in the oven, you know? So eight o'clock came and went and nine o'clock came and went and 10 o'clock came and went. And, you know, my youngest son did his homework. I went to bed and then I got ready and I went to bed and two in the morning, I hear really loud music and the car pull in the driveway. And I'm like, oh boy, this isn't gonna, this is not gonna be good. He sat in the driveway for a long time with the music blaring. I was thinking, oh, the neighbors are gonna love this. And then he came upstairs. He flips the light on and he said, and he says, I bet you think I'm drunk. And I said, no, I don't think anything. It's just, it's late. And he's like, well, I got stopped by a cop and she didn't give me a ticket. So that proves I'm not drunk. And I said, well, good. That's great. And I said, why don't we talk tomorrow? He's like, no, I want to talk now. And I said, well, what do you have to say? You know, did you go to your counselor? And he goes, yeah, I went to my counselor. He's full of crap. I was like, okay. Mm. Then he started to just, just, I, I think he was totally blacked out at that point. Oh, wow. I, I wouldn't be surprised to know. And he may have told me this after. I don't, I don't remember. If he doesn't remember any of that, he got completely Uh. outraged. So I went in the guest room and locked the door. And I just literally laying there praying that he just gets tired and passes out and we would deal with it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I hear the doorknob turning, but it's locked. And I think, okay, so he's testing the water and now maybe he'll just go down the hall. Give up and go. And all of a sudden, bam, just like on TV, kicks the door in, the door frame shatters. I remember it was dark in the room, but as soon as he kicked it, a little light came in. I remember seeing like a big piece of wood frame go flying across the room. And I was like, oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. And I was like, stop, what are you doing? And he literally took me by one leg and one arm and pulled me out of the bed towards him. And I just kind of dodged and got around him and ran into our bedroom. I picked up the phone. I had a a portable Mm -hmm. phone, you know, in a, in a phone jack. I picked up the phone. Sure. I, I said, you, you need to stop or I am calling 911. And he said, you know, you don't dare or something like that. I forget what, but I started to go downstairs to go down into the kitchen Meanwhile, my son opened his door and I said, shut your door and lock it. And he did. And Mm. Mm -hmm. as I'm starting down the stairs, I feel, I feel his hands on my shoulders and he gave me a really big push, Oh! but I grabbed the railing and I was able to hang on. So I had the phone in one hand and my hand on that railing. And when I felt those hands come off my shoulder, I bolted down the stairs as soon as I got to the bottom, I hit 911 speaker and I held the phone up. Oh, good. Cause he's wailing and screaming things at me. And 
I think within 30 seconds, cops were at my door. So mm. they took him mm -hmm. out. They took him away. They took him in. First, they took me in one room. Another cop went up to speak with my son and they took him in another room and they talked to all three of us separately. Then I saw them arrest him and take him out of the house. And they said, we're arresting your husband and he's not going to be coming home here tonight. And I said, okay. Mm. And that was that. And he never returned, you know, right. I mean, he, he did return to the house with a policeman to get his things, but that was it. That was the end. The police recommended that my son and I, I had already about six months before I had teed up a lawyer just to get some advice. And he told me that this would happen. He said, he said, this day's coming. He yeah. said, this is, this thing is going to happen. Things are going to come to a head. Right. And you are going to call 911. Right. You are not going to let yourself get hurt. You are not going to let yourself get killed. And he said, follow my advice. Call 911. You need to do it. And so that's why I did it. So I called him. He goes, right now, I want you to go get your car keys and get your jacket on and go down to the court where he is, to the court and the jail where he is. You get a restraining mm -hmm. order right now. And they will give right. you a, a year one. They're not going to give you any temporary 10-day one. So I started to object to him because I just was like, how mad is Mike going to be at me, right? I got him arrested. Right. It's all my fault now, right? Oh, my gosh, he's going to be, this is irreparable. You know, this is really it. And I started to say something back to the lawyer, and he said, are you listening to me? Get your jacket get your keys, go to mm. court, get a restraining order. And I said, okay, I will. And I did. And it, it was, it was, it was surreal. You know, they assigned me a, a victim's advocate and she was very helpful to me to get me through. I was shaken like a leaf. I bet. I went before the judge and I told him what happened. And meanwhile, Mike is right over in the perp box. He looks like hell. He's apologizing. He's crying. The judge wasn't having any of it. Good. He was like, sir, you are not going back to your house. You'll be lucky if you ever go back to your house. But mm. we are going to protect this woman from you. And mm. I felt really supported. And that night was the first night in years that I felt like I could breathe and just let my guard down because I was always walking on eggshells. I didn't know who was going to walk through the door ever. Dr. Checkle or Mr. Hyde, I didn't know who was going to walk sure. through that door. Sure. Good day, bad day. Right. Who knows what was going to set this person off. But I was definitely the right. whipping boy for many years. Was that it for him then at that point? That was it. He was out. Out for good. Out for good. That was that. So no chance of reconciling. Ever. I I was just like I was over it. There was a point in time where I allowed a little um I forget what it was called, but like a modification to the restraining order so that he could attend a family wedding because my my niece was getting married and she begged me to let him come. Uh. And I said, why? I don't want him there. And she said, but what if you guys get back together one day and you're going to, and I said, we are not, it's not happening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. She wanted him to come. And so he went to that wedding and that was, it was brutal for me. It was brutal. Did you see bad behavior at that wedding or no. did you keep it cool oh, and then no. leave? No. Quiet. The, uh, the eyes of everybody on him. On well, that at that one. point, my whole family knew exactly what right. had gone on. They're looking for him to, to make one wrong left turn somewhere. Right. And the only way I could justify it is, okay, this feels normal for the boys. They won't have to be the broken family coming to the wedding. You know, oh, mm -hmm. all my parents are here. All my parents have a problem, but they're going to work it out. That kind of thing. I don't know. But it was not happening. There was never going to be a reconciliation. And he used to say to me, I filed for divorce. We tried mediation. The judge encouraged mediation. So we went to a mediator and he said to me, you know what, this is, this is so ridiculous. 
in a year from now, we're going to be laying in each other's arms in sunny Mexico, looking back at all this and saying, boy, we were stupid. And I was like, you're in a dream world. You're living right. in a dream world. You might be in Mexico, but I won't be there. And the, and the count, the, the mediator took me aside after the first mediation. And she said, he's not interested in mediating. He is never going to agree. He is so delusional about, because she would spoke to both of us separately. He's so delusional about the outcome here that he is never going to be successful at mediation. So she said, I'm really sorry. You're going to, you're going to have to take the hard road on this one. And it was a hard road. Did he make all that very difficult for you Yeah, from that point on? Very difficult, okay. but not insurmountable. I think, you know, his controlling nature, he blew through four lawyers, which didn't help him with the judge because he tried mm -hmm. to control them just like he was controlling everything else. And that doesn't always fly in family law. No, and mm -hmm. it was very positive outcome for me, everything else. Very, very positive outcome. It was a win. It was definitely a win for me. He played it up as if it was, you know, a big loss for him. But honestly, he's he's very, very successful. I don't know that he even felt it. So from the time of the the uh, smash door incident to being divorced from him and mm -hmm. really having at least no legal connections at all, how much time was that? Took some years. Right. But normally, it wouldn't have taken so long. Had we not had that vacation home, uh, it could have been over in a year, year and a half. Okay. No, two, it did take two years. It took two years. So this part you're talking about is 14 or 15 years ago. Yeah. What would be your snapshot of, of your life right now? What's going on? Where are the boys? The boys all had, all had a different take on what happened, and they all had a different response to their father. One stood by both of us the whole time. One was very angry with his father and had a little bit of time apart from him or distant from him, but then reconciled and has a guarded relationship with him. And one didn't speak to him for six and a half years. Mm -hmm. Okay. But then reconciled and decided as everybody moved on, because I remarried and my, and my former spouse remarried. And as everybody settled in and mellowed out, I, I hear, I think the boys got into a more traditional relationship with their divorced parents. Mm -hmm. I felt like the boys have always been very close to me. And he probably feels like they've, they're close to him, which is good. I want that. And I can honestly say I never said a thing to damage their relationship. I never said, oh, that SOB or oh, that drunk or oh, that anything. I just said, look, dad and I didn't click and it didn't work. Dad has issues. I hope he's, I hope he's through his alcohol issue. I, I think it's going to ruin his life if he doesn't. That's as strong mm -hmm. as I would say. I'm like a let it go person. It's taken me some time. But I was having PTSD symptoms, you know, and I didn't even recognize it as such until later. And of all things, in 2015, my beloved boss retired. They hired somebody else who was not abusive, but somehow sparked the same feelings in me that I had when I was with Mike. And I went to an executive coach to say, How do I navigate my career with this difficult boss? And the executive coach, said, you have PTSD, don't you? And oh. I was like, what? No. I started a series of counseling for about 18 months, mm. which included tapping therapy. What's that? It's amazing. It's literally a way to disrupt your negative PTSD thoughts and reprogram your mind so that you're not triggered by something. So for example, if I saw a movie and there was a part of it where there was some domestic violence, my heart would race. I would get the physical signs of like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Like it was happening to me almost. Yes. And I would keep it all inside. I wouldn't let anyone know it was happening to me. But meanwhile, my heart rates totally. Yeah. Well, after this tapping therapy, that... I can separate myself from that. So what is, why is it called tapping? What are you, are you literally tapping? They, you literally have like a little electrodes on your thighs. I think there's a lot of ways to do it, but you have little electrodes on your thighs and the counselor walked me through every bad blackout drunk scenario that I could think of. She would say, tell me another one. 
and what happened in October of 2005 and what happened in March of 2006. Like she would ask me and make me vividly relive everything. Mm -hmm. And she was in control of these tapping electrodes that just felt like somebody was flicking your leg, like with their fingers. I was like, come on, this is not going to work. Right. And it, I think I only did it two sessions and I don't even know how long it was incredible. And I said, is this going to work? And she said, we don't know. You don't know until you, till you run into those situations. Right. That was in 2016, 15, 16. Not once have I had my heartbeat raised by a beat since then. It reprogrammed my brain to feel distant enough from that, that I don't associate it with my own experiences. I wouldn't have been able to even sit and talk to you like this in 2016. Right. It would be too, I would want desperately to, it would be too difficult for me. I I would physically have an anxiety reaction if I was talking to you about these things. Uh. It's been really wonderful because I have had the opportunity a couple times in my job and a couple times with just people that I've met for one reason or another, uh, I've had the opportunity to kind of almost provide counsel to them about this type of thing, clear-minded counsel Uh with that retrospectoscope on. And yeah, I couldn't do that. That's great. Prior to 2016. Really turned it around. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really feel like I have. I really do. Look, Sarah, I just, uh, I want to thank you so much for stopping everything you're up to nowadays and reliving these horrible things, these twists and turns. I am so proud of you. I'm proud to know you and I am related to you (laughs) also. So that's pretty good. Yeah. But I'm so proud of the fact that you managed to hang in there and kept trying to hope this thing away in, in a lot of cases tried to take steps to make it go away, did everything you possibly could, stayed much longer than I would expect anybody to put up with it and try to save things and make it okay. And, you know, I just, uh, I just want to thank you so much for, for opening up and staying with us and giving us all these details. And, and I'm so happy that, you know, I heard about some of this when some of it was happening, I, it would come through my mother telling me, you know, Mm -hmm. you won't believe what she's going through. And it's like, wow, I, I know you so well. I've known you since you were born. Mm-hmm. And I knew I knew Mike from being at your house. And he was at this house mm-hmm. where I am right now. Right. So it's just, it's the way it always goes. It's like, you, it can't be these two people. Right, right. So still, the more important thing here is just thank you. And, and I just know from feedback I've gotten that, for survivors to take the time and to give explicit details about what has happened, that people listening to this, it gives them hope. They say, wow, I'm not going through literally that, but I'm going through something like that, or my sister is, or my daughter is, or a coworker. Thank you. This is great. I I just, I feel so good about what you did and, and what you've given us today. It's just wonderful. I kept it all inside for all those years. Looking back, obviously, I regret that decision. And I think, first of all, I always say, if my father had been alive and caught one wind of that pot of water, that's a truth. Nothing would ever have happened ever again. It would have been up to me to tell him. And so don't keep it all to yourself. But I do want to say that getting to this point wasn't just all on my own. I didn't have an S on my chest, you know, the Superman. It took a lot of people's love and support, including your mother. Your mother was very, very, very important to me during this time. During my healing, we had many conversations that I would not share with other people. I shared with her, even when it did make my heart rate go up. And even when it did create an anxiety attack, I just found a lot of comfort in talking to her because she always had good common sense for me, Mm. you know, common sense advice. Also, you know, my brother, who is your buddy, he was definitely an ally. He was in on things a little bit before everything came to a head Good, and gave me a lot of good advice. So that's how I found the strength to actually follow through because 105 times I thought about going back 
And I just kept staying the course and staying the course. Thank God. And making that lawyer's appointment and making the next court date and making the next phone call. Whatever it took to separate from him, it, it really did take a village. Yeah, I'm so happy that they all stepped up. You know, I, I was hearing things kind of after the fact. Yeah. And I'm not surprised that my mother yeah. stepped in and, and played mother for you. Yeah, definitely. Hey, look, so. thank you. I know we'll be in touch soon. Okay. Very naturally. Great. And my best to your current family, your whole group and your guys. Thank you. I'm so happy you wound up with somebody you could you could really be at peace with and feel oh, so good about every time you see him and you're not waiting for that other part to for Mr. Hyde to show up at all. It's, so it's know. a stress free life, honestly. It's like good. so worth it. <laughs> well, you, you you earned it, let's be honest. Yeah. Thank you. Thank okay. you. All right. The When Dating Hurts book was published in paperback in the middle of twenty twenty followed soon after by the ebook version. While those two were out there in the world informing about dating violence, in early 2021, I launched the When Dating Hurts podcast. Now in 2022, I'm publishing the When Dating Hurts audiobook. I did the narration myself because this is my family's story. It's also a story that can save one of your family members. Find the When Dating Hurts audiobook on Audible, Amazon, or iTunes. It's the same life-saving information from the print versions, but now in listening form. Do yourself a favor. Do your family a favor. The When Dating Hurts audiobook is available now.